Why do you think there's been this resurgence? What's behind it? And this is one of those things I, I love because everyone talks about, you know, old Paris, it's crusty, it's dusty, it's musty, you know, everything is new. But the things that are new are things that are American, you know, or like the coffee shop and... and Enchanté. Bonjour, this is Fabulously Delicious, the podcast that's all about delicious French food and the people that love it, cook it, produce it, talk, write and photograph it. Restaurants in France are an institution, you could say, and many treat them as such, becoming fans of regulars at, and now, of course, in the day that we're living in now, uh, Instagram uploading diners. There are actually many different types of restaurants in France, and I'm not talking types by cuisine, like Indian, Japanese, Italian, because of course there are those, but more so by category. I mean, Lyon has its bouchons, Brittany has its creperies, and in Paris in the late 1800s came along the bouillon. Today we are going to dine at vicariously, of course, the bouillons that have reached a resurgence in the last 10 years in Paris with a Paris food fan. Our guest today loves the restaurant and cafe scene in Paris so much, she started a movement to save them. And even though our guest only has a part-time Parisian life, I'm sure we will learn a lot from her. Lisa Anselmo, thanks for joining me on Fabulously Delicious today. It's so great to be here, Andrew. I'm looking forward to it. Lisa, you're an author, speaker, coach, branding expert, the saviour of the Paris cafe scene, uh, lover of all things French food, but you have a secret that our listeners might not know, and I really want to explore this before we talk all things bouillons. <laughs> oh, dear. Do you know what your secret is? Yes. <laughs> I think you know more than I do. <laughs> <laughs> you have a food passion, Lisa, that is not just about French food, but you're secretly a fan of the dark side, right? You love Italian food. Of course I do. I'm Italian. I didn't have a choice. <laughs> I was so worried where this was going. <laughs> Hilarious, as I like to say. So your parents, they were from, their parents were from Italy. Is that right? Right. All my grandparents came from Italy, like a lot of Italian-Americans, um, and I was raised on Italian food. And in fact, I didn't even know that you that most Americans eat their salad before the meal because we always had it after the meal. It's just what you do. It's sort of to sort of lighten le gere, you know, to lighten the, the, the after the meal. And that's very Italian, very European. So I was raised on, on my mother was an amazing cook. And um, and so I was I mean, we ate all kinds of cuisine. But of course, Italian was like, you know, meat and potatoes to us. So your mum's parents, they were from Abruzio and your dad's are from Sicily. What's the differences in food and cooking between those two areas? Yeah, it's a big difference. So Abruzzo is... Um, Abruzzo, I love a, the way you say Abruzzo, that, by the way. Abruzzo. <laughs> it's, a, it's an interesting region. That was the, the largest national park in Italy is is there. And, you know, in, in 30 minutes, you could be either skiing in the mountains or lying on the beach. It's It's got a, a vast terrain. And it's actually well known for its cuisine, and a lot of Italian chefs study in Abruzzo because it's um, it's a lot of game, it's a lot of um, complex layered dishes co that cook for a long, long, long time. So, in, in fact, the traditions are, are very similar to, to French cooking, to the the cooking of Escoffier, actually. And um, in fact, my grandmother made her soup. Uh, with a broth that she used a mirepoix, and that's and that's very French, in fact. And I'm curious how that is that she had these techniques, and where, who did it first? 
Sicily, like, and I don't know a lot about Sicilian cooking, so I don't want to be wrong here because I actually never ate Sicilian. I grew up eating Abruzzese food. But but I'm going to guess, and based on what I see, uh, and in general, general, the south of Italy is the cuisine that we know most, especially in America, because most of the immigrants came from Calabria, from Napoli, they came from Sicily, and the food tends to be lighter, uh, quicker cooking. More garlic, you know, sautéed in oil, this kind of thing. Uh, and so it's a very different experience, very, very different cuisine. And I wouldn't be, and it, the thing is, because it was independent city-states for so long until the mid-1800s, every area has their own cuisine. I mean, if you're up in the north, it's going to be more like German food or Austrian food. You know, every everything's a little different depending on the region. But I had those two regions to compare. And have you been to both a uh, Abruzzo? Abruzzo. I can't say this now. I'm going to get my. Uh, get, I'm going to ruin Abruzzo. Have you uh, <laughs> been to Abruzzo and uh, Sicily? Okay, so I'm mortified to say I have never been to either of those places. <gasps> um, I know, I know. Have you been to Italy? Plan- oh, many, many times, but never to those regions. And there's a couple of reasons why. Um, I actually was supposed to go in, in 2020, <laughs> and those plans were foiled, like everybody's plans. Um, you know, I've never been to Sicily because I, you know, I, I don't know the area and it's not somewhere I want to go on my own. And it's very vast. And uh, Abruzzo is the same. I have family there and I need to do some research to find family. But it's again, it's somewhere I don't know and I don't know anybody there. So I'm wandering around Italy by myself, you know. And so unless I can find someone who wants to go. But I've been many, many times to to um to Rome and Florence and and Padova and um, Milan and you know various areas like that. My parents, or my mother actually, she was half Italian. Her father was from northern Italy, up uh, near um, Venice. My mother was also half Czechoslovak. What was what was then uh, Czechoslovakia? Uh, so Czechoslovakian. She didn't get that Italian food tradition thing that so many people get and are so lucky to. So it sounds like your your mum did, and that you got that uh, growing up with fabulous Italian food. Is that right? Absolutely. Um, you know, the, these recipes from our family are passed down from generation to generation. And my sister's an amazing, she's a chef, actually. And, um, and yeah, so we, we, we carry on the tradition. And neither of us feel we can cook it as well as our mother did. And I'm sure our mother felt she didn't do as well as her mother did. But these, these recipes are in our family for, you know, hundreds of years. Amazing. You grew up in New Jersey. Is there a large Italian community there? Oh, big time. Absolutely. The whole tri-state area, um, as you can imagine, because the immigrants would come through um, Ellis Island uh, and, you know, the famous Statue of Liberty. And uh, my grandmother was actually processed through Ellis Island and then went on to Buffalo where her her husband, her husband-to-be was waiting for her. But um, yeah, I know there's a huge, 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 huge population, particularly um near um i wanted there's certain counties in new jersey northern northeastern new jersey that have a lot of italians but really new jersey's got a huge italian population mostly they come from the south um of italy and because of that we have great pizzerias in new jersey yes of course in new york and brooklyn but new jersey has great pizzerias and i i was weaned on many many good ones near me I don't know why I asked that question. I've just realized the real housewives in New Jersey, they're all oh, Italian. Hello. 
I think it's so funny that we're discussing the Real Housewives. I know. That's, that's a, my mother would call them caffone. Oh, what's that mean? Uh, gavone. Caffone means like, okay, every Italian here, and this is going to be mortified, but it's somebody who has no class, somebody who is... It's it's come to mean that what it originally means I have no idea, but of course with the with the with the American American slang it, it comes out as gavun, ah oh, the gavun gavun. Actually, getting back to Italian food, um, what's what most do you love about Italian food? Well, um, it's a it's a you know it's a it's a question that's pretty packed because um, for me it's emotional, right? So and actually I write about it in my book. I write about watching my grandmother make gnocchi you know, with this machine-like precision of only years of practice can give and us sitting around the table, you know, at Christmas Eve. And I have so many stories of that. It's it's the sitting at the table for hours, you know. We sit at the table Christmas at 2 p.m. and we don't get up till 2 a.m. You know, that's very normal. And so for me, it's very, it's, it's, it's an emotional hearkening back to familial life to my childhood and to the traditions that are the continuum in our lives. You know, even my sister and I, it's just she and I that are left. And, um, you know, it's when we cook something of mom's and we talk about it on the phone and, you know, should we do this? Should we do no? Ma, I wouldn't have done it that way. You know, it's, it's how, it's how connected it is to the, our, identity, my identity of who I am and who my, who our family is. Cause every family has their own traditions and their own particular recipes. How does that uh, love of Italian food, that love of home uh, compare to your love of French food? Well, I think what I love about French food is how much it's similar, the, the, the eating of it and the, the family quality, familial and the social quality around it, how similar that is to Italian food. I mean, it's Europe, right? So for me, um, and and because of the, the the food from my heritage, Abruzzo, is so similar in terms of its richness, you know, our spaghetti sauce takes all day to cook. You know, you start with a big quantity, and by the time it's done, it's half of that, and it's black. Like, my grandmother's sauce was black. And so it's got the same, it's amazing, and so rich in flavors and so many meats, and, and, the, and it's long, it's a long cooking process. So that's kind of similar to some traditional, a lot of traditional French cooking. And I just, it's, it's, it's familiar. And I think that that's part of what I love about it. And just being in Europe obviously makes me feel close to my roots. So there's that. And it's just, you know, that's the love of food. It's how the, 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 it's how the French plan their day around eating. So in 2006, you wrote a book, Part-Time Paris Life. It's a memoir of sorts. It's written after your mum passed, unfortunately, from breast cancer. My dad passed three months before moving to France and then my mum the year after here moving here. So I know um, the loss of, of your parents and what being in Paris at that time is like. You probably talk about this in your book, but how did life in Paris help or hinder your grief process after your mom passed away? Such a good question. And I didn't know we had that in common. Um, You know, my mother's death was a huge catalyst for me. So I had put her in the center of my universe. And, you know, I wasn't married. I didn't have kids. So she was sort of everything to me. And when she died, I realized that I didn't know who I was on my own terms. And I became very, very depressed. And I got the idea in my head of getting a pied-à-terre in Paris. I inherited some money. It's a tiny place. didn't cost a lot. But it became this 
toehold, literally a pied à terre, became a toehold into Paris, which I had been coming for many years and had many friends. And so it was my happy place. And I had it in my head that I needed this apartment. But it was a very, very brave thing for me to do. I would never have done that normally. And when I did it, and I literally flew out for a weekend, picked a place and flew back. It's the crazy stuff I would have never done. And the boldness of that changed me. And so when the opportunity to take a package at work, I used to work at People Mag, People Magazine, um, I took it, but with trepidations, even though I had huge projects in Paris that were getting tons of press, the, the whole world was saying, go to Paris, go to Paris, like the universe was pushing me. In fact, I got the book deal the day I decided to take a package. So the universe was like, we're going to reward you for being brave. So I came to Paris. I don't, I, you know, the, it was really just to be happy. You know, in my mind, it was a place to be happy. So I told this whole story just to explain, answer your question. I came here thinking I was going to be in this amazing Zen place. I was going to write my book. It was all going to be shiny pennies all day. And instead, I arrived to a leak. The apartment was would, would become completely destroyed by it because the neighbor would refuse to repair it until I got a lawyer. And uh, so I had to move out of my apartment because I'm allergic to mold. So here I come to live this dream, and I end up getting... Uh, have tried scrambling to try and find a rental. And it, the, plan, the trip wasn't anything that I planned and I had put all these expectations on it. So I was actually miserable for the first two months until I realized like, oh, you know what? This is your book. Like this thing you're going through is your book. It could be very good and very funny. And then I, I also had a lot of time to myself, which was hell because I had this busy, busy job and suddenly it was all unplugged. And now I had only me and my grief. And so it forced me to face my life, my choices, and deal with my grief because I was by myself in a strange city that I thought I knew, but when living here is not vacationing here and in Paris. I, I say here because I'm in Paris. Um, and so it, 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 I was courageous enough to make that move, and then it made me really tap into that courage. And it, it, I'm not the same person I was when I started that journey that I began to do bolder and bolder things. I, you know, I finished the book. I started the series. That's the same name, My Parts in Paris Life. We shot it in 2015. And that's, again, all bold, bold, big, big stuff that I would have never done. And that's what I think Paris Paris itself, the strokes and slaps of expat life, It you know, it you sink or swim. and But you learn and you grow so much if you're willing to stick it out and you're willing to take those slaps and turn them into lessons, life lessons. And so it it uh, it shaped my. I think it shaped me for the next thirty years of my life. Before we get into all things bullions, I wanted to ask you about an obsession that I've realised you have. Uh, we also have it in common. But what is it about French butter that you love so much? Oh man, you know the you know the the original tagline of my blog used to be, "I bought an apartment in Paris so I could take home the butter." It's just, um, it's just, it, it tastes more of, of milk fat than of grease. And the butter in the U.S. just tastes greasy. I can't, I don't understand what they're doing wrong. And it's just, it's the creaminess. It's the sweetness. I remember the first time I was 16, I came to Paris for the first time and had the butter with the orange marmalade on a baguette and thought, oh, I, I've died and gone to heaven. You know, it's just, I will always have like four bars of butter in my freezer at any given time because you just you can never run out that's the worst it's just the it's the it's the creaminess and the sweetness that is like nothing else and I'm sure maybe the butter in Italy and Ireland I hear that's great too 
but I'm here. So it's just amazing. And the way it cooks, you know, it doesn't burn right away. I don't know what it is. It's magical. I you mentioned butter from Ireland. I'm wanting to go and taste that now because, yes, I think you might be right. The, the cows would be eating all those four-leaf clovers. I don't know. Very lucky butter. <laughs> exactly. I hear. I hear. The legend is that it's very good. <laughs> You're listening to Fabulously Delicious, the podcast that's all about French food and the wonderful and fabulous people that make it. If you'd like to support the making of Fabulously Delicious, then there are many ways you can do this. The first, and by far most possibly the most important, is to follow wherever you listen to podcasts. That's uh, Apple, Spotify, or wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. Also, leave a review and a rating. A five-star rating would be fabulous. Merci beaucoup. Financially, you can support Fabulous Delicious by becoming a Patreon member for as little as the price of a copy copy. Let's start that again, shall we? For as little as the price of a cup of coffee a month, you can become a Patreon member and and receive, obviously I'm having a problem talking to you today, and receive exclusive content just for you. I'm currently rejuvenating all the options on Patreon, so stay tuned for more information on that. But not everybody can support monthly, so if you'd like to, you can just do a one-off payment via the Buy Me A Coffee website, where you can buy me a croissant. Both the Patreon and the Buy Me A Coffee croissant links are on the show notes for this episode. Thanks for all your support and the fabulous Patreon members that are already there. Thanks also for listening to Fabulously Delicious. And now let's get back to our chat with Lisa Ansimo and all things Bouillon, the restaurant, not the stock cubes. Although stock cubes do get a mention. On to our topic today, the Bouillon. Can you explain what is a Bouillon? So a Bouillon it actually refers to a type of dish. And um, it was it's a dish of broth and meat. And it was actually invented by a butcher, Pierre-Louis Duval, in the mid-1800s. He was uh, in Léal, and he was sick of wasting the parts of the meat that the bourgeoisie didn't want to buy. So he created this idea of this broth, and he it's... It was it was for the workers at Leal, so they could eat something cheap and quick and good and hearty. And that began and they became very popular. There were more stalls than actual restaurants, you know, in the in the in the 1800s. And they were cheap and you know, these little places. And um and there were by by 1900 there were 250 bouillon in Paris. If you're going through a Paris supermarket or if you're, oh, sorry, French supermarket, or if you're, say, looking into a cookbook, you'll often get a bouillon, as they'll say, a bu- they'll mention a bouillon. So that's a stock cube is what I would know it as in Australia. Right, a bouillon cube. Mm-hmm. Is that where it comes from? I'm going to guess, I'm going to guess. No, I'm going to guess that's where it comes from because it was, it really does come from the, the verb bouillir and, uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised because what is it? It's a meat stock, right? It's some kind of meat stock. So I, I wouldn't be surprised, yeah, if it came from the actual de bouillon. And you mentioned that it was close to Leal. And so just to let our listeners know that they might not know, because many people would go to Paris and see Leal as a great big shopping centre, but it was actually a food market. Right, the belly of Paris, right, Emile Zola. Um, yes, it was a giant giant uh i think there were six giant six buildings glass buildings uh like six covered markets uh i I feel like i want to say and it was where all the food um the main food market of the city which is now outside the city in the suburbs and it wasn't just for you know 
the regular folk. It was for the industry as well. And um, and then, of course, it was demolished in the 70s, and then they realized that this was uh, historic and they shouldn't have done so. It, the, the problem with it being in the center of the city, obviously, is the food waste and the rats and all these problems it was creating. But then they demolished the buildings, which were beautiful. And um, and so that's why they, when they re-demolished what Leal had become and they built the new one, they wanted to bring back the idea of this glass canopy, the roof. But yeah, now it's just like a shopping mall and, and it's, it's, yeah, it's not, not what it was. Well, two things that I love about Paris now actually is one, since going back after confinements, is that the last remaining hall has been turned into the Pinot private collection. So they, did, they didn't knock down all six, they kept one and that one was the Bourse de Commerce. And now it's been completely renovated and it is, was bought by Pinot, French billionaire, and he houses his private collection in there. And right. it's just the most amazing exhibition. It's literally, right. I think, just opened in the last three or four months. But, of course, the other thing that the demolishing of Leal gave us was the promenade, well, it's no longer the promenade of Plantain, but the, the Viaduct Arts and the what I know as the promenade de Plantain in the, the Bastille because that train line closed once Leal uh, in the 70s, 80s, that train line closed and they made that park on top like the New York High Line. Right, and it came before the High Line and I that's nearby where I live. So mm-hmm. The bouillon was, you mentioned, getting back to it, uh, was invented by Pierre-Louis Duval. His restaurants or stalls uh, ended up being like the first chain stores, right? There was like lots of them. This was the, you're right, this was the first fast food, essentially. Um so there were, like I said, there were 250 around 1900, but they weren't all, they were all differently owned, right? Because it came the trend. So the Chartier brothers, they opened up the first one that, that is the most well-known because it was the one that survived the longest, the one on uh, Faubourg Montmartre near, near Grand Boulevard in the center of the city. That, that, um, they opened that in 1896. And that, but that was a very radical departure from what the Bouillon had been. The Bouillon had been, um, like I said, these little holes in the wall. You know, like a, like a little fast, right? It's like a little, they created this ma- this huge space. I mean, Charité, I don't know if anyone's ever been in it, but it is as tall as it is wide. It's this massive, massive ceiling and it's bright and it's very, it, it, you know, it feels, you know, for the day it was very elegant. So imagine you're a worker and you're going to have your quick meal and you suddenly you're, you're transported into this beautiful, bright space. And that, so in that way, it's very revolutionary because, you know, you're not, it's not an expensive meal. You're not wealthy, but you are in a space worthy of, you know, a king. And that must have been so transportative for anyone who went in there, even for the 20 minutes or the 30 minutes they're there. And that's what I think, you know, Frédéric and Camille, I think that's Chartier. They, I think that's what they brought to this fast food experience was why shouldn't it be a nice space too? And that began um, what, what we know as the Bouillon in these luxurious looking Art Nouveau spaces. So Art Nouveau was de rigueur at the time. It was the tendance. It was the trendy style. And so um, there was uh, Bouillon, it was Bouillon Gandal uh, Duval or Gandal Fournier that opened up in two, uh, 1903. And that was, um, Edouard Fournier. So they were like the, the now suddenly the Chartier brothers had competition. Fournier was it. And they were 
egging each other on. And that actually is what's Julien now. So that was in uh, Rue de Faubourg. I guess you have to be on a street called Rue de Faubourg or something. Rue de Faubourg, Saint-Denis. And, um, and, and that was in this beautiful, opulent Art Nouveau style. So again, imagine you're going to have like a, you know, a two cents bowl of soup and you're in this beautiful space. So that in itself was really revolutionary. And, you know, you're giving this the, the middle class and the working class a, a boost up in a way, culturally and, and psychologically. And um, so that actually uh, then became Julien. But um, then another one opened up, somebody else, in what is um, what is now Vaginombe. So in, in, Saint, in, in, uh, in, in Saint-Germain-de-Prés. And that's something I wanted to talk about. Anyway, uh, just, uh, so the Chartier Brothers, not to be outdone, opened two more. Guillaume, one on Boulevard Montparnasse and one on Rue Racine in the fifth, which are both still there. So Rue Racine, that location is a historic landmark now. And it still says Bouillon Camille Chartier, even though it's not called that anymore. So that's sort of like that was the beginning of this luxurious looking uh, Bouillon. And I'll tell you, there are many brasseries that actually were Bouillon before like Vaginonde. And, and Julien was a brasserie for years and years and years, if you remember. And then it became again, and we'll talk about this, it became again a bouillon. The first bouillon started, so to speak, with what we talked about, a beef soup. And then how did this emergence of the Art Nouveau and the, the mass, like the, the trying to say something and I can't get it out. How did the n- numerous new venues and the Art Nouveau venues of the Bouillon change the Bouillon's menu? Well, um, I don't have any evidence of the original uh, Chartier menu, although the one that they have now has been the one they've been using since the 30s. But, um, but Fournier, he had a philosophy and it was here, everything is beautiful, delicious, and of great value. So the menu was fairly expansive and of course, very affordable. So it had a lot of the, the dishes of the day, like, you know, tête du veau and, you know, choucoutazassienne and all these things that we've come to know as brasserie food, right? Because it's essentially the same, right? I mean, the, the bouillon is actually the first brasserie in many ways the first one uh, that Duval created. But um, it, it, was, um, it, was, it was so not to, not to deprive or not to, it, again, it's what I was saying, revolutionary in its way because A, it was the first fast food. B, it was inexpensive. C, in an incredible, beautiful space. And then the food also had a sense of... Um, value, right? Like you deserve this nice meal in this nice space and we're not going to gouge you for it. I mean, just think about how, that's very revolutionary at the, at a time, you know, during the Belle Epoque, you know, I mean, the city's always had struggles between rich and poor. And this was sort of an, a hugely egalitarian move. Today, there's been a resurgence of the bouillon. Um, before we talk about specific places, I wanted to ask you, why do you think there's been this resurgence? What's behind it? And this is one of those things I, I love because everyone talks about, you know, old Paris, it's crusty, it's dusty, it's musty, you know, everything is new. But the things that are new 
are things that are American, you know, or like the coffee shop and, and the burgers, right? But that, that they're saying young people don't want all this kind of heavy food. They don't like it anymore. And you know what? It's not true. It's just that it was tucked away inside of expensive brasseries. And I, I you know, I'm, I've been, you know, faulted for being too nostalgic and being too stuck in the past. But the thing is, a good idea is a good idea is a good idea. And we need this more now more than ever. Paris is so expensive. And there's a lot of young people that are struggling to, to be here. And these the, the idea of a bouillon where you can have good, hearty food for cheap, of course it's a great idea. It was a great idea then. It's a great idea now. And it's why suddenly there's a resurgence. And if you see the lines outside waiting to get in because there's always a line, it's young people. Right. And, and for me, this is this is what the resurgence of the Bouillon, why it makes me a little too smugly uh, glee, because, um, you know, like I told you so, um, it's it's to see these foods, these traditional French foods finding their way into the bellies of a new generation being loved and eaten and embraced. I mean, Ted DeVoe, I mean, who, you know, who would ever think? Right. The, the younger generation is embracing it wholeheartedly. So it's nothing to do with changing taste. It had everything to do with changing price. And this is to me, the, the, the brilliance of the of the Bouillon is that now a whole new generation of young Parisians are discovering and enjoying this food again. And it's uniquely French. It's uniquely Parisian. Right. And that is that's what makes me so excited about this idea and so happy about it. Is that it's a good idea. Bring it back. Why wouldn't you? So now in this time of resurgence, where can we go for a really traditional bouillon experience well, in so Paris? They're, they're all traditional. Here's the beauty. Here's the beauty. I, I got yeah, I to I do my due diligence. So look, Chartier reopened. It was, it was called Montparnasse 1900 and Boulevard Montparnasse was a brasserie for years. It's again a Chartier, bouillon Chartier. Julien reclaimed its original vocation, was a brasserie for years and is now again a bouillon, and that's on Rue de Faubourg Saint-Denis. That's a little more of the pricier one. All the menus are really, really traditional. Chartier, of course, is number one. But there's the newer ones that would be interesting to check out, and that's by the Moissier brothers. And they're two, like, bobo hipster dudes, right? And they have Chartier, uh, they have Bouillon Pigalle, Bouillon Pigalle uh, on uh, Avenue um, de Clichy. And that they built from the ground up. That's not an old anything. That is a brand-new two-story uh, Bouillon. And I'm telling you, the menus, I'll give you an example. And they just opened a new one called Bouillon République. And that's where the old Chez Jenny used to be. And that was an old brasserie that I used to go to all the time. I miss it. But I'll t- give you an example of the menus. And it's like, like, where can you get an, an entree, an appetizer for a, a Euro 90, right? That's, and it's, and it's, mayonnaise. I mean, this is the stuff that your grandmother ate, right? Or like, you know, the, the, you can get a, um, a confit de canal for 11 euros or, or a cuisse de poulet for nine euros. This is the kind of food that's there. And it's to all traditional. Like, and this is the, this is from the new Bouillon, uh, Pigalle. They are, they dig it, they dug it right up in the past and are reserving it for cheap. But how, okay, I don't want to be a cynic here, but how do they make money? Because, you know, you talk to a restaurateur or a chef, part of the reason why Paris is so expensive is because, you know, you have uh, really high rents. You know, the cost of good ingredients 
quality ingredients is really expensive now. Um, you know, the wages, how electricity, uh, don't get me started on electricity. Um, how do they make money with having such a cheap thing? So is it back to the old days? Is it food for the masses? Are you supposed to, like, is it a place that you can go to with your laptop and sit inside a bouillon and on a meal and, <laughs> and work for three hours or are they going to kick yeah. you out after? Yeah, they make, they make money on covers and turnover. That's how they make their money. So like if you, if you wait online at any of these places, um, you're in, if you wait more than 20 minutes, it's a lot. You're in and you're out. And that's why it's the fast food. It was the original fast food. It's, you know, if you're there an hour, that's a lot, you know, and, but it's still a wonderful experience. And, you know, look, the food isn't brilliant. It's, it's respectable. You know, I had a printer that used to have a sign up on the wall, good, fast, cheap, pick any two, you know, um, but it's good. I mean, I've never had a bad meal. It's not, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't write home about it, but it's, they make their money in, in quantity turnover and number of tables, number of seats covers, they call it in the business. And, um, and obviously because of that, they can buy large quantities of food, they get a discount. You know, I'm not a restaurateur, but I'm assuming it really has to do with having a fixed menu, cooking it in bulk and churning it out in rapid succession. And getting back to your Italian roots, is there an Italian equivalent to the bouillon? Oh, totally. Um, and they have it in fr Paris too, in France too. Um, you know, the, the truck stop, right? The roads, the roadside stand, the roadside restaurant. They, they call them here routier, which is another trend coming back. There's all these routier-themed restaurants. And again, they're serving traditional food for not so much, not as cheap as a bouillon. But so uh, the, um, we, we have a running joke, my Italian friends and I, that um, we'll have some pasta in New York and, and they'll say, you know, it's, it's, it's good. It's like, you know, train station food in Italy. You know, it's of the quality of a train station because you can get decent food at the side of a road. You know, they have these little roadside. In, in, the, in, in the U.S., we have McDonald's at these rest stops. Right. But in Italy, they have these wonderful little restaurants and the food's great and it's cheap. And it's again, it's 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 meant to be something you pass through. You fill your belly and you move on. Finally, a question I ask everyone. What is the most fabulous thing about France to you? I think it's well, I'd have to say the cafes, the cafe culture and the food culture that goes with that. It's this idea of conviviality around food that the focus on food is the center of the social gathering. That is something that's very unique. It's Italian too, and I talked about this earlier, but for me, I would have to say my life in Paris, the cafes are the thing, and that's why I have saved the Paris Cafe because we've lost 500 cafes since 2014, and we just spent eight months without cafes when we had lockdown, and we know what Paris is like without a cafe. It's not livable. It's the ability to sit at a terrace and have a glass of wine or, or, or a cafe, a coffee, and watch the world go by is something that is like nowhere else. You certainly can't do it in New York. And I, I think I can boil it down to that just because having not had it, I know how important it is to quality of life here. Lisa, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for telling us all about the bouillon and, um, and also about your secret obsessions, uh, Italian food and French butter. Oh, what could be better? Thank you for joining us on Fabulously Delicious today. Thank you for having me. This was so much fun.
Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Joe. And, and we're, we're the, the Professional, professional book, book Nerds. Nerds. Two Mondays a month, we interview authors and talk about their upcoming books, what drives them, and their go-to order at the cafe. On Thursdays, we share recommendations and dive into topics readers face, like how do I actually read the books on my to-be-read list? You can find the Professional Book Nerds podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn more about us? Our website is professionalbooknerds.com, and you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. We hope you'll come and listen, and as always, happy, happy reading! reading.